So now, church, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're reading Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You may be seated. In the first service, I was sitting next to my children. I leaned over to my daughter and I said, Hey, sweetie, I'm not feeling very well. I might need you to go up and preach for me. Could you do that? She said, I got it, Dad. <clears throat> I said, what, what would you say? She said, grace to all of you, you are dismissed. <laughs> so I'm sorry to tell you the sermon is gonna be much longer this morning. Some of you might prefer my daughter to preach, but we are gonna be in Acts 15 this morning. Open your Bibles. In Acts 15, we come to maybe the lowest part in the story of Acts, the saddest part, and really maybe one of the lowest points in the early church when we have this split between Paul and Barnabas. And if you've been with us for a while or you know the story of Acts, you know that Paul and Barnabas have been like this dynamic duo, instrumental to the growth and the expansion of the Christian church in this new missionary era. You may remember in Acts 11, uh, Paul had kind of been forgotten about, it feels like. He, he went to Tarsus, he's been there for 10 years. There's this new church in Antioch, lots of things are happening. So Barnabas goes and gets Paul, pulls him out of retirement. They strengthen this church, they build this church up. Then Paul and Barnabas are a part of the first ever organized missions church planting team. They go for an entire year and they share the gospel and they plant churches. They go back and report what happened. Then Paul and Barnabas go back through all these churches. They, they establish leadership and elders in these churches. They get back to Antioch and now there's a big problem in the church. There are these Judaizers sharing a gospel that is other than the gospel that had been handed down to the apostles. So Paul and Barnabas, again, together, go down to Jerusalem to meet with all the leaders in the Christian church and they straighten things out. They are sent back together from Jerusalem to Antioch where they deliver the letter and the decision and then they work to prevent, even though the decision had been made, we looked at last week, they come to, they address the potential for the church to split even so. And so they have been together doing mighty things for the kingdom. And then in this passage, there arises such a disagreement between these two that they will no longer work together. I mean, even, even in the early church, when the Holy Spirit is doing unbelievable things, miracles are happening left and right, still, two people can disagree in a way that can result in them not working together anymore. In the pre-service meeting this morning, we, uh, Matt told me I should have named this Splitsville, which was a reference that was totally lost on me. Uh, maybe because I'm getting old, maybe because I don't look at tabloids when I check out of Walmart and Publix, maybe both, I don't know. But apparently Splitsville is a reasonable thing to apply here. There is a split going on. And what I want to do in this passage is just look at the conflict. And then second, I wanna look at what we as a church can learn from this conflict. So first, what was the conflict? Barnabas and Paul had come back from Jerusalem 
with the people that were sent with them, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem leaders said, we're gonna send some leaders with you just so everybody can know. Like we are really behind you, Paul and Barnabas. That happens, they deliver the message. Then the text says that the leaders that had been sent with him go back to Jerusalem, all except Silas. Now, th there's an important question here because um, most likely, unless you have the King James Version of the Bible in front of you, you do not have verse 34. You don't have a verse 34 in your Bible, most of you. You'll have a footnote that said there is a verse 34 in other translations, but there's no verse 34 here. If you have the King James Version, it probably says something like, it seemed good for Silas to remain there. So who decided to take this verse out of the Bible? And is that an okay thing to do? And can we trust the Bible if people are just adding and subtracting verses? So it seems. Well, without going into great detail, the King James Bible was, was translated and established in 1611. And when that happened, it was a, a world-class accomplishment of both science and art. It was amazing what, what they were able to do, these translators. You know, I got to really study it in seminary. And the King James Bible is a, a work of art and a work of science. I can't say enough about what they accomplished with what they had. They brought together all these ancient manuscripts from in Greek, in Latin, in Hebrew, and they put together the English translation. It wasn't the first ever English translation, but it was the most significant development for the common people. But we now have even more manuscripts. We have older manuscripts than they had access to. And as your footnote most likely says, the oldest manuscripts that we have now that they didn't have access to don't have this verse in it which means likely somebody added it to add clarity because Silas is an important part of this passage, as we'll see. They just wanted to clarify, Silas stayed. So if that's true, does that undermine the reliability of the New Testament? Absolutely not. We believe the Bible is inerrant in its original form, but what language do we read the Bible in? English, is that the original form? No, so we do have what we call variants, small variants, and, and they're all footnoted. Wherever you come across them, you'll see them in your, in your footnotes, but none of these variants in any way changes any primary or secondary doctrines that we believe in our faith. They, they, don't, they don't change anything. And I will also say no other sacred book like the Quran, Quran has the reliability of the Bible because in the case of the Quran, there were not just variants, but whole other versions that they had to burn or hide to be able to keep their faith together. The Bible, on the other hand, scholars have not hidden what we have learned. We have, we have done everything we can, and which is a lot, if you study the reliability and historicity of the Bible, to be able to understand and have faith in what we read today in English. There is no other text of antiquity that has more reliability and historicity than the New Testament. And I think you can, we, uh, why I think we can trust it even more is because you know in your footnotes everything the world knows about all the ancient manuscripts and texts that are out there, of which we have tens of thousands. I've seen a couple of them myself in Europe, which is cool. All right, so... Wanted to address that. Verse 40, though, says that Silas was there. So it doesn't even add anything or change anything to our passage at hand. Back to the conflict. 
Paul and Barnabas, they want to go back through the churches again, the churches that they had planted and established leadership, and they want to go back and strengthen them. Barnabas says, let's take Mark. Paul will have no part of taking Mark. Apparently in Pamphylia, Mark had in Paul's mind abandoned them, and there is no way he is going to let Mark come back. It's clearly a sour taste in Paul's mouth. We don't know the circumstances of that abandonment. I think we should be slow to cast judgment when we are not given the circumstances in God's providence. We just don't know. But we know that Paul does not want this mark to be joining them. To him, abandonment is a big deal. When I was in my early 20s, I met uh, a very old man then. I have to imagine he's no longer around. Um, he, but he was a sailor in the Italian Navy during World War II. And he was bragging to me about the fact that twice, not once, but twice, everyone on his ship died but him. And he was talking about what a miracle is that he's still alive today. And I said, well, tell me about this miracle. What did you do to be the only person twice to survive on your ship? And he said, well, I abandoned ship. (laughs) Really? Tell me about that. Well, the first time he literally jumped off the ship and swam back. The second time they were on shore leave, knew a big battle was coming. So he went AWOL and walked home. So the, the miracle was not seeming as miraculous to me anymore. And, and yeah, my, my, my whole thought on him had soured a little bit because a soldier stays with his troops. A sailor stays with his ships. And when, if at all possible, a missionary stays with his team. And I say if at all possible because there are times that missionaries legitimately have to leave the mission field. My family, we were missionaries, Angel and I were missionaries twice, and twice we had to come back for what we felt like were legitimate reasons. The first time, Angela was struggling deeply with depression, and the second time, if, if, I, I, if I was going to finish seminary back in that time, I had to come back to the United States, and that was something we felt called to do. And we felt like they were legitimate, concern, uh, legitimate reasons to come back. We were affirmed by our leadership. But even so, we still struggled with a deep feeling of guilt for leaving the other missionaries and young believers behind. It was hard to leave the mission field. And so in God's providence, we aren't told what the circumstances are that led this young Mark to leave the team. So we shouldn't make a judgment on who was right and who was wrong. We, we do have every reason to believe it wasn't because Mark gave in to heresy. It wasn't because of any severe immorality. But we also know that Paul does not believe that Mark had a good reason to leave. That part is clear. Barnabas, though, does. Barnabas wants to give Mark grace. We don't know why. It may be just because Barnabas, has a, he was there and he has a different perspective on the events that transpired. It may be because Mark is Barnabas's cousin. That could be a factor. It may be just because he knows that Mark is young. He's young and maybe he made a mistake, but he deserves a second chance because his future is bright. And from what we know about Barnabas's character, remember the son of encouragement, maybe Barnabas is just more likely than the rest of us to offer somebody a second chance, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to believe the best. Maybe some of those, maybe all of those were factors. We don't know. But whatever the case was, Paul wanted no part of Mark joining them. And so he and Barnabas, after all the work that they had done, they split. And this is a really sad moment. I mean, we we should get here and grieve the split. 
We should feel it. We should grieve the broken relationships, the potential division in the church, because these two had been the backbone to the expansion of the church in this new missionary era. I mean, what's going to happen without this, this dynamic duo, this team that we've always known together? What, what's going to happen now? And, you know, what we have at the core... You know, we don't have any reason to believe Paul's in sin or Barnabas is in sin. I'm not saying they weren't, but we don't. It seems like you have two men, one emphasizing one biblical principle of wisdom and one emphasizing another. So what we're dealing with is the, a difference in opinion on the application of biblical wisdom in a certain situation. And I think even in our modern day, we can look at splits and just kind of write them off as if, you know, well, it happened to Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas, so it's just a Paul and Barnabas split. Those things happen. No big deal. Let's move on. We can't do that. This is serious. This is sad. This is something we should grieve every time that it happens. When I was a candidate to be pastor of this church, during that process with discussions with me, there was, there was one elder who said, I, I can't go forward. Uh, and, and he said, I'm, I'm going to let y'all go forward and I'm going to leave. And the elders wrote the church a letter and said, this is, I went back and read this letter to make sure. And the letter said, this is a Paul and Barnabas type split. And they didn't say that to make it seem easy or write it off. It was sad. This was a godly man and we were sad and he were sad that we couldn't continue together. It happens, but we shouldn't minimize it. We should grieve it when it happens, just like we grieve it in this text. For Barnabas, it seems like this was the end of his missionary journeys. It, it, church tradition tells us that he returned to Cyprus where he lived the rest of his days. And apparently he, he lived many days. He grew to be an old man. The rest of the New Testament chronologically doesn't really tell us anything more about the rest of his life. There's a story about him in Galatians 2 that precedes this account. But we, we don't know much more about Barnabas. Paul, on the other hand, we know a lot about. We, we follow him all the way to his execution in Rome. And then we have in verse 40, Luke records, but Paul chose Silas, now that Barnabas wasn't available, and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, when they were commended by the brothers, this does not mean that the church was taking Paul's side. I don't think we can, we can take that to mean that. What it, I think it means that in spite of this this really sad moment, this division, the church is saying, we're not gonna take sides. We're not gonna cut either of you off. We're not gonna cut Paul off. We're gonna continue to support him and give him our blessing. I think that's what's going on. And that's the conflict. So what can we learn today from this conflict? I think four things. And, and I was blessed by the work of an author named Robert Gonzalez and some of these four things. So I wanna give him that credit. First, we can't let divisions between other Christians divide us. If at all possible, another way to say this, we can't, if we can avoid it, we shouldn't take sides. We shouldn't be divided by other Christians' disagreements. You know, this was happening in Corinth. People were dividing in the church in Corinth, saying, I'm of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm of Paul. And what does Paul say to that church? He doesn't say, hey, all you Apollos people, become Paul people. I, I'm, I'm right. No, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being mere human? Not a compliment. What then is Apollos? What is Paul's servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. 
Sometimes we do have to take sides and we do have to form firm opinions. But in many cases, we don't. We don't have to. Biblical wisdom often says, take your concerns to the Lord. Take your suspicions to the Lord. Resist the urge to gossip about what's going on. Resist the urge to take up somebody else's offense. Resist the urge to take sides because in so doing, if you can avoid it and you still do it, you're contributing more to the division of the church. And the purity of the church is something that is hugely important to our Lord. And I will also say, if you are a church leader or find yourself in, a church, in leadership at some point, and this isn't just limited to elders, although it does, it's not limited to deacons, although it is included, that those offices are included, people lead in different ways. This can include many different types of leaders. But if you are a leader in this kind of dispute, our task is to disagree in such a way that does not unnecessarily contribute to the division in the church. Disagree in a way that offers grace and charity to the other side. One of the real privileges that I've had this year is to moderate a series of debates. Uh, they're called the Good Faith Debates, put on by the Gospel Coalition, and I'm really thankful the elders let me do it. Clark and I flew up this week on Thursday to record the second round. It was a long day, five debates. <clears throat> and one of these debates was, interestingly enough, <clears throat> excuse me, between Jen Wilkin and Jonathan Pennington. And, and both of whom, I, I, I mean, I, because of our Sermon on the Mount series on Sunday nights, I had both of their books. <laughs> like, I, I, he has an, the best commentary you'll see on Sermon on the Mount. We're going through her book of questions. And it was really fun and, and encouraging to see them debate each other. <clears throat> and they debated each other on the question, should Christian parents send their kids to public school? This is a hot debate. I mean, this is something that has divided Christians. This is something that actually has divided churches. This is something that way back in the day in this church was, was a very important thing on both sides. But what was interesting to me is the charity and the grace that they gave each other, which is the whole design of the debate, good faith debates, the charity and the grace that they gave each other, even though they strongly disagree. They disagreed in a way that at the end, the people in their camps are more likely, I think, to be unified than divided because they were so gracious and charitable in the way that they disagreed with each other. And in so doing are a great model of what we as Christian leaders should look like and how we should act when we do really disagree on something. God doesn't expect or want us always to take a side, so we, re, we resist that temptation. And we look at it as an opportunity to recommit our trust to the Lord by bringing our concerns to Him and trusting that He will take care of this. Now, sometimes some of the, the other parts of the church will be brought in to help mediate, but generally speaking, in most issues, we'll be able to, we'll be able to trust the Lord. We'll have an opportunity to trust Him in those divisions. Philippians 3.15 says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So that's first. Second, we can't let disagreements between church leaders and even failings of church leaders weaken our faith. We need to be okay with the reality that until Jesus comes back, there will be disagreements in the church. 
The church is led by sinful people who will not always agree. And it is possible to have too idealistic of a picture of the church in this already not yet. One day Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna make everything the way that it should be. But until then, there will be disagreement. And, and praise God, we're in a pretty sweet season right now. <laughs> I'm not aware of any disagreements in our leadership, but you know what? It won't always be the case. We will have disagreement again, I promise you. I know just, just enough time, it'll happen. And we shouldn't be caught off guard. And we shouldn't let it affect our faith. Church leaders are going to disappoint us. I am going to disappoint you. I hope it's not too terribly. <laughs> But it's inevitable at some level because we are sinful people. And now more than ever, we, because of the internet and the, the great blessing slash curse that social media is, we know about all the tension that exists between church leaders. And there's, there's more opportunity to be divided than ever before. Not only do we know about division between church leaders, we know about the fallings and the failings of church leaders. If you've been in Orlando for more than 10 years, we have seen more than our fair share of Church, fallings, church leaders falling, failing, and disagreeing and splitting. But we can't allow that to cause us to question the power of the gospel and Jesus' plan for his church. I, I, guarantee, I, bet, I, I really, I, I've thought about this this week. I bet once a month I meet somebody in Orlando who says I stopped going to church because of this person or this disagreement or this situation where there was some disagreement or falling or failing on the part of a church leader. That's tragic. It shouldn't be the case. But it is the case. And often it's the case because we can't see the full picture. We don't know when, when there are these disagreements. We, don't, we weren't there for the most part. We don't know the hearts involved. We don't know the insecurities and the fears and the hopes. And we also don't know what God's going to do with that one day. So we can't let it cause us to doubt our faith or weaken our faith. We can't see the full picture. About five years ago, my, uh, my family was asleep and the alarm went off, the house alarm. And I got up and checked everything out. It seemed like it's fine. I can't remember what set it off, but I think I figured it out. So I reset the alarm and I went back to bed, but I forgot to turn my plane off airplane mode. So the alarm company was trying to call and couldn't get us. And so as I was falling back asleep, I noticed out our back window, three flashlights. And I, who's in my backyard? And then I looked, I saw three policemen. Now I look in the front yard, there's two more flashlights. So they've got five policemen walking around our house. And I'm thinking, this is a little, little extreme for an alarm. So I opened the door, I said, God, I invited them in and I said, what, what's, what's wrong? And they said, well, when you didn't respond to your alarm, we, we looked in your front window and we saw signs of a struggle. I was like, I have four kids. <laughs> My house often looks like signs of a struggle. And in their defense, it was the Olympic season and they had taken the cushions off the couch and made an Olympic course that they would play in. But the police came to the wrong conclusion because they didn't have all the information. They didn't have all the pieces. And they, they, they led them to the wrong conclusion. In the same way, often when there is division among individuals in the church, and especially church leaders, we don't have all the information. And if we try to get involved often, we're going to be led to the wrong conclusion. The Puritan 
Matthew Henry once said, we shall never all be of a mind till we come to heaven where the light and love are perfect. And the Apostle Paul wrote, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. We need to be content when we see disagreements in the church that we don't know everything. But we need to trust that God does. He does. Thirdly, we need to believe that God can use even the worst disagreements for good. You have to imagine Satan was pretty pleased at this point. You know, Paul and Barnabas are split up. Maybe this is the death blow to this new missionary era. But as a result of the split, what happened? Essentially, the manpower for this mission doubled. Because what happens now that they have the split, Barnabas is working in Cyprus. Mark seems to be with him for a time. Silas is then kind of promoted to take on new responsibility with Paul. Now more churches are planted. And if you remember back in verse 36, when Barnabas and Paul had a plan before Mark kind of got involved, the plan was simply to go back through those churches and strengthen them. Well, now... Because of this split, the work is expanded and churches end up being planted in Macedonia and Greece. So you could make an argument not, you know, that this bad thing was really used in light of the big picture of the expansion of the church for God's glory and the good of the church. And in addition to that, we have to at least think about how God might have used the events here to work in the hearts of those involved, in Paul and Barnabas and Mark. I mean, Mark had to be encouraged that Barnabas would stand up for him and say, this man is useful for ministry on the mission field. I bet that stayed with Mark the rest of his life. And I have to imagine that Paul's tough love stayed with Mark also. Surely that solidified in his heart, if he did make a mistake, that he would not make that mistake again. And maybe Barnabas grew. You know, Barnabas, son of encouragement, always there with an encouraging word. Maybe he learned to, to press into some hard situations a, a little harder. Maybe he learned how to speak a little more truth. And then Paul. Maybe Paul didn't forget about the grace that Barnabas offered Mark. And later on, maybe his heart softened in a way because of it. I, I, actually, I do think that's the case based on some things that Paul writes later on, years later in the New Testament. And it would really be an interesting alternate timeline, you know, Back to the Future style or Marvel to see what would have happened if Barnabas had not stood up for Mark. Because we know as a result of Barnabas standing up for Mark, Mark ends up with Peter. And Peter's whispering to him and telling him all the things that he saw Jesus do in his earthly ministry. And what do we know that Mark does with that information? He writes the Gospel of Mark. Could it be that if this split did not happen, if Barnabas did not stand up for him, the gospel of Mark would not even have been written? I don't know. It's possible. But we also need to be careful not to minimize or sugarcoat any division, especially when it comes to church leaders. We, we need to know that God uses it for good, but we don't need to minimize or sugarcoat any of it. But we can't forget that we serve a God who does use evil for good. You remember the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. 
horribly, horrible thing, evil thing. And then years later, Joseph has risen up to be the number two in all of Egypt. And he meets his brothers again. And what does he say? In Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Because Joseph had been sold and because of the events that had transpired, when the famine hit, there was enough food for Israel and all of Israel was saved. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And then we know Paul, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, everything. We may not know in the moment. We may never know. Maybe God does 10,000 good things through a situation, a hard situation. Maybe we only ever know two of them. But that doesn't mean that the promise is not true. In every circumstance, God works good for those who love him. And that includes disagreements in the church. So when divisions happen, and they will, again, they will. Can we just pause and even if it doesn't seem like there's an easy conclusion, can we have an expectancy in our heart that God's in this? He's going to use it. It's going to be hard, but he's going to use it for his glory and for our good because he promises to do that. And if we do believe this, we can know that our past sin and, f- and failure does not preclude us from a future faithfulness and success. And some of us need to hear that and believe it about somebody else. And some of us need to hear that and believe it about ourselves. But it's true. And then fourthly and lastly, we need to remember that differences do not have to destroy love. Even though there is a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, between Paul and Mark as well, as we continue through the New Testament, Excuse me, it seems really clear that all parties continued to support each other as brothers in Christ. They continued not just to support each other as brothers, they supported the work of each other, the labor that they were doing. They were affirming of it. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul calls Barnabas an apostle of Christ and a fellow laborer for the kingdom. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells tells, tells us that we need to be praying for all the saints. And I have to believe that Paul was doing what it was he was writing and that he was including Barnabas and Paul in his prayers. He was praying for them. If someone wrongs you in some way, if there's a disagreement and you can't come to a conclusion, pray for them. Blessed are the merciful because it is, for it is they who receive mercy. And as you pray, see if God doesn't soften your heart toward them. And if you believe they're still a Christian, you know, and, and, and even though you think they're dead wrong on this thing, if you think they're still a Christian, pray for God to bless them. Pray that, they, that somehow one day this could be resolved or moved past because you don't know that one day your paths won't come together again because that's exactly what we have happening with Paul and Mark. This horrible disagreement. He won't even go with Barnabas because he does not think Mark has a place for him on the mission field. At the end of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, you know that Paul names six people. And he says, these six people bring me great comfort. And one of those six people is Mark. 
Paul's letter to Timothy, what we call 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter. He's in prison in Rome. And I've been in what they say is that very prison. If it's not the very prison, it's, it's, it's just like it. It's basically a concrete hole in the ground about the size of one of our children's classrooms that they would just drop men in dozens at a time. It was a horrible place. He's writing to Timothy from that prison. And he says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Can you imagine how Mark would have felt in that moment? He's not just saying, hey, Luke, uh, Mark's okay. Mark's a friend. He's a brother. He's saying, get him. I need him. He can be helpful to me, not just on the mission field, but at the end of Paul's life. The one who thought that this man had no place on the mission field is now calling him to the capital of the empire to serve Paul and the church. You never know what's God's gonna do, what God's going to do. The love between them was not destroyed. Differences do not have to destroy love. And I've experienced the blessing of this from brothers and sisters who disagree with me. Many of you know that Matt West and Ted Herbach had a lot of disagreement with me. They were both officers in the church and they both left the church, but they did not cease to bless me. I would get hilarious comments from Ted as we commiserated about how horrible FSU is, and apparently after last night still is. Matt West was a lawyer and would give his, uh, he, he gave his skills to me. I didn't acquire his skills, that's a weird way of saying it. He lended me his skills to serve me pro bono when the sale of my house in Oxford got so bad that I got sued which I was exonerated over for what it's worth. But pro bono, he was there to serve me. These men, I have every reason to believe, kept praying for me and blessing me in many ways. And now that the Lord has brought them home, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful. Some convictions in doctrine, some convictions about doctrine and gospel ethics are primary and non-negotiable. They just are. But when it comes to application of wisdom, may we be humble and eager to see the Lord work in unexpected ways. May we maintain brotherly love that is patient and kind and not easily provoked, a love that bears all things, that believes all things, and that, know, that, that, that hopes all things. And may we do this because that is the way that Jesus has loved us. That whatever abandonment happened here, and whatever abandonment and denial we've experienced in this life, none of us has ever denied someone or abandoned someone or been denied or been abandoned more than we have done so to Jesus Christ. I mean, think about Peter. What did Peter do at Jesus' greatest hour of need? He denied him three times. That's a picture of us. All of us have done that. And our abandonment and denial of Jesus Christ sent Jesus to the cross because it's our sin that kept him there, but he went willingly so that we could be reconciled to the God who we abandoned. And that should be the fuel, the fuel that should, should give us more forgiveness and patience and believing the best and love for people when we disagree. 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ fuel our service to each other, especially in our disagreements. Because when Jesus came back to Peter, he forgave Peter. And then he used Peter mightily. May the assurance of the triumph of the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ, give us hope when we see leaders disagree. And we will. But the church is fine. God is at work. He is not caught off guard. And he will use it as painful as it might be for the good of this church and for his own glory. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. We thank you so much for not whitewashing the story of the early church. You show us the hard things. You show us what we need to see so that when the similar things happen, that we can offer ourselves grace and yet have practical and heart-level ways forward to navigate it. God, we thank you that you do use all, all things for good for those who love you. And Lord, we pray that that would be true here. I thank you that we are in a sweet season, but I'm not naive. I know that it will not always be so. Would you keep in our minds and our hearts these principles that we see in the split of Paul and Barnabas? And would they be quickly remembered when we need them the most? When we have disagreement among us, would we be quick to forgive, quick to listen, slow to speak? God, would we not gossip or take up others' offenses, but use it as an opportunity to trust you more? And as leaders in this church, would you give us wisdom? Wisdom in how to disagree well and how to trust you that you are going to take care of this church. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.